to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. We trust that you will enjoy today's message and that it will encourage you to grow deeper in your relationship with Christ our Savior. I want to um, chat a bit about relationships and specifically um, about um, marriage. Now, but I'm, I want to start with, with sex. <laughs> now, uh, most adults think about sex, whether they're living with it or without it. <laughs> uh, I'm not saying we think about it all the time, but we do think about it, right? You know, um, you know I, w- I was sort of second of a, a family of five children, my older brother sitting there with four, four boys and then a girl. So I grew up with mostly boys in the family and my mom. And um, I was in a boys' school from SIP A, from, well, we called it in those days SIP A. You can see how old I am. I just turned 40 in this last month. Um, uh, grade one, I'm told it's called nowadays. <laughs> uh, and I was in an all boys' school from, from grade one all the way through to matric. So, I, you know, I, I never attended school with girls. And uh, I never really had many lady friends, you know. And, um, you know, my only significant relationship with, with a woman was with my mom. And, um, you know, with, you can imagine with five kids, you know, it wasn't always that easy, you know. So, uh, <laughs> you know, our, our relationship was also sometimes a bit strained. We never, you know, I can't remember, I don't know whether they did it with my brothers, but, but I never got the birds and the bees talk. <laughs> never happened. <laughs> So you can imagine I had to find out about sex in all the wrong places, you know, in the, in the sort of kleedkamer at, at school, you know, or, you know, in magazines or from my friends. And what they knew about sex was just downright dangerous. <laughs> and um, so, for, you know, and many of us, you know, grow up, you know, and because, you know, sex is such a taboo issue, you know, often it's not spoken about in the right ways or in the right places, and you find out through all the wrong means and in all the wrong places. And, and often what you know is wrong. You know? And I remember you know, one of the things that was really strange for me is you know, marriage and sex was this sort of weird mystery that I didn't have a clue what to expect because I just didn't have any you know, significant relationships with, with women in my life. So I was, you might say, okay, any you weird. You know, okay, fine, I am weird. Ganan Elkin say Aviking. You you're weird in your own ways as well. So but but all of us grew up with these issues and all of us um you know one one thing that I must say, I think because of my sort of fear of, you know, women, you know, of the opposite sex and just you know, total not knowing, you know, what sex and, and relationships, you know, healthy relationships are about. I totally avoided it. So the upshot of that was that, you know, I never had sex before marriage, um, which is good, you know. Um, but, um, you know, some of us, you know, grew up on the other side of the spectrum where, you know, we also got all the wrong input and we got into wrong relationships and, and that sort of messed up our lives. Um, and, Here's the thing, there's, there's a, uh, Miles Monroe, a, a guy, said the misunderstanding or misunderstanding of purpose inevitably leads to abuse. 
a misunderstanding of purpose inevitably leads to abuse. And that is as true for sex and marriage as it is for anything else. If you misunderstand the purpose of something, you, you can't help abusing it because you don't know what it was created for. You don't know what the right purpose is, so you end up doing it for the wrong purpose. And because, you know, sexuality, um, you know, has in the past been such a taboo issue and difficult to talk about for many people, and because many of us learned about it in all the wrong places, we end up getting a wrong understanding of the purpose of sex and sexuality, and we end up abusing it. And it does great damage to us as people. And, you know, we go into to marriage and we don't understand the purpose of marriage and, and we get hurt or we get disappointed. We go into relationships in general and we don't understand the purpose of relationships or we don't understand how it works or how it's supposed to work and, and we get hurt. And, and there's, a, there's a lot of confusion, I think, nowadays about relationships in general, about, um, about sex, about marriage. Um, now... I realize that there, there are probably a few young people in the audience here, so I'm going to try and be as, as modest and as tasteful you know, in talking about sex as I can. I'm, in fact, I'm just going to share a few different views. I'm not going to get into the nuts and bolts of sex. Okay, maybe that's a wrong metaphor to use. <laughs> unfortunate metaphor. <laughs> if you want to know... <laughs> if you want to know more specifics... My, my mother-in-law was a nurse. She did sex education. Jade is a doctor. And I know we have Theodia and Scarpa and a few doctors in the house. You can go and ask them. They know a lot more than I know. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, the, the Bible is not afraid to talk about sex, about relationship in general. I mean, if, if you look at Song of Solomon, I mean, some of it is like just you know, bald face, you know, just celebration of sexual love, you know. Um, and, and here in 1 Corinthians 6 that we're going to read, uh, 6 and 7, Paul also, you know, talks very straight about, um, about sex and about marriage and stuff. Let me, let me just read you a couple of verses. Now, this is from the, the, the NIV. It, it says in 1 Corinthians 6 from verse 12, I have the right to do anything, you say. But not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now, let me just interrupt myself there. The, the older translations didn't always put that in inverted commas, recognizing that he's actually quoting something from their context, either something that they said in a letter to him or something that was a slogan that was common in, in their context. But the, the, the newer translations actually do that. So, so that's not, you know, when he says, um, I have the right to do anything, you know, it's something that they are saying. It's a slogan that was common in their culture. And, and, and Paul actually, three times in this passage, he quotes such slogans, and then he either, either negates them or modifies them and says, no, this is not entirely right. You know, I just want to modify it and, and fix it. So he says, you know, um, I have the right to do anything, or anything's permissible, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now, it seems like he's jumping from food to, to sexuality, 
But there's a definite connection there, and we'll, we'll get to that in a, in, a, in a moment. Verse 14 says, by, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. So who's this Lord? When he says that the body is for the Lord, who's this Lord? It's the Lord who is raised from the dead. It's Jesus. So he's saying Jesus was raised from the dead. Our bodies will also be raised from the dead, and therefore it matters what we do with our bodies. These bodies are going to last for eternity. Maybe not in exactly the form that we have them now, but they are going to last for eternity. Then verse 15 says, Do you not know that your body, bodies are members of Christ himself? Members as in body parts, limbs in a spiritual sense of Christ himself. Shall I then take, shall, shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them to a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? Literally, it says in the Greek, is one flesh with her. For it is said, the two will become one flesh. And that's from Genesis 2 verse, verse 24, um, where, where God says, Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and cling to or be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then he says in verse 18, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits is outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against his own body. Do, not, do you not know that your body, bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God in your bodies. And then chapter 7 goes on and says, uh, Now... For the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to touch, or literally it says in the Greek, not to touch, but, but here in the NIV it says to, not to have sexual relations with a woman. I was quoting once again there. Um, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty uh, to his wife. And likewise, the wife to the husband. And husbands and wife are like elbowing each other. <clears throat> Did you hear that? <laughs> Verse 4 says, And the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to the wife. Do not deprive each other except, perhaps, by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. And then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And what I want to show you here is that Paul deals here with three sort of views or approaches to sex and sexuality that were common in, in the sort of Corinthian context, and which surprisingly enough are probably the most common um, approaches and views of sex in our context as well. So the, the first one is sort of the self-expression view. And in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 12, he says, everything is permissible. Well, I have the right to do anything, but everything is not beneficial. Everything is permissible, but I will not be mastered by anything. And if you go and check in chapter 10, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 23, you'll see that he again quotes that same thing. Everything is permissible, or I have the right to do anything. But, then he qualifies it, everything is not beneficial. Um, so, he's quoting here from their context. And in their context, there was the slogan, the saying, everything is permissible. And in other words, everything... Anything goes. That's the anything goes approach. You know, everything, anything I feel like doing, anything I, what I feel determines who I am and what I, what I can do. 
So if I feel a certain way, if I feel a desire or a need for some other sexual expression, then anything goes. Whatever I feel like doing goes. And don't we see that you know, very commonly in our context as well? In fact, that's probably one of the most common approaches to sexuality. I don't think that in our popular culture there's anything that defines people's identity more than their sexuality in their minds. And the, 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 the approach is, you know, whatever I feel like must be right because I feel it. In other words, your feelings are sacrosanct. My feelings are sacrosanct. Whatever I desire, whatever I, have a, whatever I lust for, whatever I have a, a desire or a passion for, that must be right. And I have the right to do it. It's permissible. Anything goes. Anything I feel like doing, anything goes. Now, the, the problem with that, now obviously from a worldly perspective, and, and many of you might be sitting here and saying, well, yes, of course. I mean, how can your feelings be wrong? Because we've, in our popular culture, we've exalted feelings to one of the highest places. Whatever I feel, no one may challenge that. No one may, may, may disagree with that because it's offensive, right? In, in popular culture. But it goes on the assumption that what I feel is right. What I feel is sacrosanct. And there's nothing wrong with my feelings. Now, just think for a moment. Do you ever have bad feelings? <laughs> Do you ever, ever, ever have feelings of anger or hatred towards other people? Do you ever get road rage? <laughs> uh, when that taxi ducks in front of you, you know? <laughs> and you're sort of tempted, you know, to use some other road sign, you know, to show the <laughs> taxi driver... <laughs> How you feel about him, you know? <laughs> or at least shout at him, you know, that, you know, something, you know. <laughs> Don't sit there staring at me all, you know, holier than thou. I know you get angry at the taxis too, you know. Or, or, or you know, someone close in your life, you know, either a child or a parent or, or a spouse or something, you know. If you've been living for some, with someone long enough... Sometimes there are bad feelings towards that person, right? <laughs> so we know that our feelings aren't always right. We know that. If I, one of the problems with children is that they don't have any emotional filters. They just do everything they feel like. You know, you know, and they bite each other and they hurt each other. And you have to teach them, you know, don't. No, it's not right. You can't just do everything you feel. You can't just vent yourself. But I mean, that is, that is, that is the... The modern secular humanistic approach, no, it's, it's, it's very bad for you. It's very, it's very uh, you know, unhealthy to, re- to suppress your feelings. You know, I remember hearing a story about a lady um, or a gentleman, an old gentleman. Um, actually, a friend telling the story was, you know, he saw an old gentleman um, sitting on the train, you know, probably in his 70s, 80s, you know, very old gentleman. He was in Sweden. And there was a, a young lady also sitting there with a little boy. And the little boy was small, you know, maybe three years old or so, you know, and, and he was running around, you know, in the train, you know, there weren't many people in, in the train, in, in, in that carriage, and he was running around, and at one stage, he sort of stopped at the old man, and he kicked him on his shin, and the old man said, oh, you know, and, and he may, someone who's 80, year old, 80 years old, I mean, your skin isn't that thick anymore, you, you get a good kick on the shin, you can start bleeding, and then it you know, it doesn't stop easily and you get bruised and so on. And, 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 and when he got the a, a reaction of like, ow, he was like, this is cool. And he kept on kicking. 
and, and, and the old man, you know, like, he was, he was not very strong, so he couldn't, you know, restrain the, the little boy. He said, uh, please, madam, can't you restrain your son? And she said, no, no, he, he must give expression to himself. And he was like, we were like, why? <laughs> you know, are you serious? But that is how far. I mean, in South Africa, we're not as far as many, much of the rest of the Western world is with this whole thinking of it's bad to suppress your feelings. Whatever you want to do, whatever you feel like doing, you must give expression to that. And that is particularly true for secular humanistic Western world when it comes to sexuality. So that is... That is a very common approach. You know, anything goes. Anything's permissible. Whatever I feel like, that must be right. And Paul says, no, 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 no. No. Maybe in some form that statement you know, has some truth to it in, in the sense that we are not under the law anymore, so anything is permissible, but not every, everything is beneficial. So if you walk in the Spirit, you're not going to do everything, just everything you feel. In, in other words, what, what Paul is saying is, and what the whole Bible says is, you know, we must take into consideration that we have, as human beings have fallen. And everything about us has fallen. Our bodies have fallen, so they decay. They get sick. They die. Our minds have fallen. So we become foolish in our thinking and darkened in our understanding. Our emotions have fallen. And sometimes we feel emotions that are sinful. Fallen. In other words, if you're trying to navigate by your emotions, you're like an airplane flying through the mist. You can't see, and your emotions, your, your, your instruments have, are faulty. They're broken, but you're trusting them. And some other time, if you trust, keep trusting in those faulty instruments, your plane is going to crash. That is what Paul is saying. Everything's not beneficial. Everything that your emotions say to you or you want is not beneficial for you. It's not good. Your emotions, you want things that are not good for you. Don't trust your emotions. Don't trust your thoughts. Right? So that's the first view of, wrong view of, of um, you know, false. Uh, so so the, 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 the one, the purpose of sex here that is a, a false purpose is sex is based on my emotions and it, it determines who I am. Whatever I desire sexually determines my identity. This is who I am. And the reality is because sex is such a powerful physical and emotional and whole person experience, it has a lot of power to form our identities. But if we just say anything goes, I have the right to do whatever I feel, and base our identity on that, we're going to have a lot of confusion in terms of our identity. The, the second um, view that he addresses is the self-gratification view. And that's in the next verse, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 13. He says, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. And th this is based on a very common Greek view that was current at the time, which later on came into, uh, sort of was mixed by some with, with Christian ideas and became a heresy called Gnosticism. And, and this, this um, Greek idea was a, a radical Greek dualism between the, 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 the flesh, the body, and the spirit and the soul. And, and, and the idea was that the spirit and the soul are good and the flesh, the body, is evil. And, and 
you know, it, it usually went in two different directions, and, and we'll, we'll see both of them here now. The first one was, well, if, if the spirit is, is, is evil and uh, the flesh is evil, and I'm not really flesh, and, and, and salvation is when I escape my body, you know, through esoteric knowledge, then whatever I do in the body doesn't really matter. So I can do all kinds of sin because I'm not really my body. It's my body sinning, and one day I'm going to leave my body. And many Christians believe that too, by the way. I mean, we've probably all heard the saying, which comes from the sort of prosperity gospel, which is, you know, has Gnostic roots, unfortunately. I am a spirit, I have a soul, and I live in a body. You know, that's not Christian. That's Gnosticism. The Bible says I am a spirit, I am a soul, and I am a body. And for all of eternity, I will be all three, spirit, soul, and body. I will be temporarily at death. My, my soul and my spirit will be separated from my body, but then it will be eternally reunited again at the resurrection. Eternally reunited at the resurrection. Jesus himself, God the Son, is spirit, soul, and body for all of eternity. So your body, you are. Your body is, is an integral part of who you are, of who I am. So we cannot go for this Greek view that the body is unimportant. Whatever you do with the body is unimportant. So, so let, me, let me paraphrase that view. That view, you know, it says food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. Is, you know, if I'm hungry, I eat. If I feel like sex, I do it. If I'm hungry, I eat whatever I can find. And if I, if I, if I in other words, sex is just an appetite, just like, like hunger. It's just an appetite. And it's an appetite that you just have to meet, just like eating food. Nothing funny about it. It's just an appetite. And that is also surprisingly a very common view in our time, isn't it? It's a very common view in our time. So many people think of, you know, we are just, because of the influence of evolution, for example, we're just talking animals. You know, and animals, you know, do it on the Discovery Channel. And, <laughs> you know, we should do it too, you know. You eat, you drink, you have sex. You know, it's just an appetite. There's nothing sacred, nothing special about it. And it's a very low view of sexuality. And you do it with whomever you want. Because eventually, you know, God's going to destroy both the body and, you know, the food. Everything's going to be destroyed. Everything physical is going to be destroyed. The Bible says, no, everything physical is not going to be destroyed. God's going to resurrect the body. God's going to create a new, not only a new heaven, but a new earth. The earth will not be destroyed. It will be recreated. Okay. The third view um, is found in chapter 7, verse 1. And that's the self-denial view. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations or not to touch a woman. Now, I, I, I realized um, when I was preparing later the week that I actually quoted that on Wednesday out of context. Uh, you know, when I was trying to give an answer, I don't know if any of you remember, but, you know, I quoted it as though it was something that Paul said. When I went to check carefully, I realized, oops, <laughs> made a mistake. This is not actually what Paul is saying. This is, once again, Paul quoting his, his audience, the Corinthians, you know, and something, some other slogan from their, from, from their context. Uh, and, and this slogan said, um, you know, it's good for a man not to touch or not to have sexual relations with a woman. And, and this view, with, with the other view, the first view is sort of the, the, the sex as self-expression and identity. The second view is sex as mere appetite. This view is sex as dirty and defiling. Sex as sinful. 
And this is sort of the stereotypical, um, where the first two views are sort of more the liberal view. This is sort of the stereotypical conservative view. You know, sex is dirty and, you know, it's, it's necessary for procreation. No, it's necessary for us to have children, but it's a necessary evil. You know, even within marriage, you know, and, 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 and there, are, there are some people who think like that. There are even, sadly, some Christians who think like that. And once again, we see that just like the liberal view is too low a view for sex in Paul's eye, this conservative view is also too low a view for sex in Paul's eyes. And Paul says, no, this doesn't work either. No, the self-denial view doesn't go either. And, and, and we see culture sort of fighting against each other. You see sort of the liberal side of culture, you know, just going absolutely crazy in, in terms of anything goes and, you know, it's just an appetite and do it with whomever you want to, whenever you want to, however you want to. And then we see the overreaction to that, the conservative side, you know, saying, no, nothing goes, you know. You know, sex is bad, sex is evil. And you, you get the impression, even among some Christians, surprisingly, that you get the impression that they think the devil invented sex. Right? I mean, sometimes when I talk to Christians about sex and sexuality, I, I sort of get that impression. You know, sex is this evil thing that the devil invented. No, God invented it. God invented it. And, 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 and sex is pleasurable because God in, created it that way. This might be a shock to some of you. God is not a killjoy, you know. Christians aren't supposed to be, you know, some of you sitting here, maybe you're not a Christian or so, you, you, you're sort of thinking, but, you know, what's going on here? This is mixing, mix, messing with my stereotype about Christians. I thought Christians are supposed to be these prudes, you know, not supposed to enjoy anything. Well, no, actually not. That's a, that's a stereotype of Christianity. That's a misrepresentation of Christianity. You know, what, what I've found is that, that many people who, reject Christianity, often have those kinds of stereotypes and misconceptions about Christianity. You know, they, they rightly sometimes reject the misrepresentation or the stereotype of Christianity, not knowing what the real thing is. Well, Paul says, you know, this, this kind of th- thing that, that sex is evil, that sex is dirty or defiling, not biblical at all. Not biblical at all. Okay, so uh, just to sum up, you know, you have these three um, approaches to, to sexuality, these three false purposes. Sex, the purpose of sex is self-expression. The purpose of sex is self-gratification. It's all about pleasure, me doing what I want to do and enjoying it as much as I can. Uh, sex is about self-denial. Now, the first one, sex is uh, self-expression, makes sex all important. Now, let me just stand still here for a while and, and just maybe try and explain this because... Um, you know, there, there's a, a, a guy, Ernest Becker, who wrote a book, Pulitzer Prize-winning book, uh, "The Denial of Death," and he said, "We we, we are the first generation." And now he, that was written in the mid '70s, and and at that stage already, he said, "We are the first generation that has a widespread belief in no ultimate future. In other words, no heaven or hell. When you when you you know, when they put you in the ground, you just disintegrate. There's no consciousness after death. He says, we're the first generation to have a widespread. I mean, there have always been people who haven't believed in God, haven't believed in, in uh, eternity, haven't believed in heaven or hell. But he said, now it's widespread in the West. It's never been this widespread. 
And the problem with that is we still feel inside ourselves that we are not just worm food. There's something more to us than just the physical. There's some deeper purpose. If you take God away, if you take eternity away, then what is the purpose of man? How can we still have purpose? How can we, we still have this yearning inside of us to, 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 to connect with something greater than ourselves? We, have, we even have this need for perfection, to be loved by something that is higher than ourselves. How do you do that? If you throw out the, what he calls the religious solution, now, now Ernest Becker is not a Christian, he, he says the religious solution was, has failed. Actually, more accurately, it's been rejected by the West. Okay, it's not failed, but it's been rejected by the West. So, so he says, but he says, if the, the, the religious solution failed, you know, one of the first solutions that modern man came up with was the romantic solution. In other words, if I don't have a God who can love me, who, who's greater than I who can love me, then I'm going to take all of that expectation, all of that need, and I'm going to transfer it from God to the love partner. To another human being. And he says it's for both sides, you know, whether you're the, the God in the relationship or the slave, it's unbearable. It doesn't last, it doesn't work. No human being can take that kind of pressure. Finding your identity in a sexual relationship with another human being, ultimately, and, and, and he says so, and he's, a, he's not a Christian, he's a, he's a complete secularist. He says it's totally destructive. It doesn't last. We know that. We can see it from experience. It tears relationships and lives apart. It's completely destructive. So, so that makes sex and, and the sexual relationship all important. I find my identity in it. Um, it determines who I am. The self-gratification and the self-denial views you know, make sex, instead of all important, makes sex unimportant in, in completely different ways. And the Bible says both those views are ah, wrong. The one is a, is a rebellious approach. The first two, self-expression and self-gratification, are rebellious approaches to, to sexuality. The third one, self-denial, is a religious approach. And, and God says both the rebellious approach and the religious approach are wrong. They don't work. They're not biblical. The, one is a, is a, the first two are liberal approaches. Anything goes. The, second, the third one is a conservative approach, a self-denial approach. Nothing goes. The first one, self-expression, says that the purpose of sex is identity. It determines who I am. The second one says the purpose is pleasure. It's all about enjoying myself. The third one says the purpose is just procreation, just to have children. It's a necessary evil that you have to endure to have children. And, and Paul has a very different view of sex and sexuality, a radically different view. So, so the, the fourth view that he proposes is the view of sex as not self-expression, not self-gratification, not self-denial, but self-donation, self-giving. Sex is radical self-donation. Um, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 16 says, Do you not know that he who unites himself to a prostitute is one with her in body? Or one flesh with her. For, for it is said, the two will become one flesh. The two will become one flesh. Now, we read that, and, and, and you know, there are sort of different ways of interpreting this. I'm just going to mention three, three quick ways of how people typically inter interpret this. The first way is, um, you know, a man will leave his father and mother and 
be joined to or cling to his wife and they will become one flesh. Then becoming one flesh is, you know, sort of metaphorically speaking about their children. You know, in their children they'll become one flesh. But he doesn't say that when a husband and wife come together sexually, they might become one flesh. Because not all marriages result in children, right? So it can't really be that view. That view must be wrong. The one flesh doesn't refer to the children that come from the, from the sexual union or from the marriage. Okay? The other view is um, that the, the one flesh literally means the, the act of, of sex, you know, sexual penetration. You, you physically become one flesh. But that doesn't really make sense either. Think about this. He's saying those who enter into, those who, who enter into physical union become a physical union. I mean, that would be redundant, right? I, I mean, he'd, be, he'd literally be saying nothing. It, it wouldn't really make sense. That, that can't be what he's saying either. It's not just saying, you know, those who become one flesh are one flesh. You know, those who, who enter into physical union are f- physical union. It, it says becomes continuously one flesh. So there's a, there's a continuous oneness. Even when you're not having, you know, doing the physical act of, of sex, you, you, you're still, you know, one flesh. So what is it referring to? What is this one flesh? Think about it, you know, I think sometimes we, we have stereotypes, you know, whether it be, whether, whether we sort of unchurched people who are not used to, used to sort of King James or, or Bible language, or whether we church people and, and are used to it, we often have these stereotypes about the word flesh. When you hear the word flesh, what do you think of? Bad, evil, sinful, right? Most of us have, have that sort of idea. Now, now, the word flesh can sometimes mean that, flesh as opposed to spirit, um, or flesh as sinful nature, but it can mean a lot of other things as well. I mean, God says in, uh, in Acts chapter 2, for instance, Peter quotes the Old Testament in Joel 2 as saying, in those days I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now, that, does that just mean all sort of you know, physical meat that he's going to pour his, his spirit on, you know, animals, humans? No, it means all kinds of people. So, so flesh often, in fact more often than not, means embodied personhood. Flesh is embodied personhood. In other words, what Paul is saying here is when you have sex with someone, you actually bond with that person not only on a physical level, but on a level of your entire personhood. And, and, and we know this. I mean, those who have been married for a while, eventually, you know, in any given situation, you know, you know, within a split second, what your husband or wife would think of the situation, right? Am I right, Robert, Madeleine? You guys, the older guys, yeah? You, you, can, you can relate to that? You know, because you've been living with each other so long and so intimately that you know each other's hearts. You've been sharing so much with each other that you know each other's hearts. In other words, you, you become one flesh in a sense, two persons, but one unity, one being in a sense. It's a very special connection that happens there. And that's why Paul says, you know, you know he who joins himself, uh, unites himself to a prostitute, is one, one body with her. So, so here's, the, here's the problem that Paul says. He says, um, physical unity should not happen without whole person unity. 
You shouldn't want to give yourself physically without giving yourself as a whole person. Now that's exactly what's happening in our culture, right? I want to give myself physically. I want to have sex with you, but I don't want to give my heart. I don't want to give my life. I don't want to become, I don't want to lose my independence. I don't want to use, lose my financial or independence. And, I, and, and when I give myself physically to you, I don't want to give my heart. So I don't want to keep giving myself to you. I want to go and give myself to other people as well, physically. So there's, there's this divorce between giving your body and giving your heart. Giving your life. In other words, I want to get naked, excuse me, and, and make myself physically vulnerable without making myself emotionally vulnerable without making my heart vulnerable to you i want to become one with you in body but not in heart and paul says that's a monstrosity that's against the purpose for which god created sex in fact here's the problem and we know this from experience now some of you might not have been you know as messed up as i did so you you maybe you know before you came to the lord you 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 did maybe get into sexual relationships with different people and you know you know, even when you intend to just have a one-night stand, even when you intend just to have a short-term relationship that's all focused on the pleasure, even when you intend to only give your body but not your heart, you always give more than you intend. Right? You always give more than you intend. In fact, that's how sex was designed. Sex was designed as radical self-donation. Sex was designed as a commitment apparatus that enables us to make covenant with one another between husband and wife. And here's the problem. And we know this from experience. Many, many of you, you know, if you've had sexual relationships um, before marriage or outside of marriage with maybe multiple partners, um, you know you know that you end up giving more than you want and you always walk around with that connection and it becomes a burden. In other words, when you give yourself sexually, you're either going to enjoy it or you're going to endure it. <laughs> Hello? Am I right? You're either going to give it in the safe place of marriage and enjoy it and continue to give yourself, not only physically but also emotionally, your whole being, your whole self, or you're going to give it outside of marriage and give it to a whole lot of different people and you're going to have to endure it because a little bit of yourself is going to stay behind every time. I mean, we've all heard this um, illustration, you know, I, I remember it was a, at a youth group once, I saw a guy take a piece of sellotape and he took it and he said, you know, in, in relationally we like the sellotape and he put it and he stick it to, to a chair and to a table and then pull it off, stick it to the wall, stick it to the to the window eventually you know the glue every time you pull it back off again some glue stayed behind on the table or the chair or the wall or whatever and you know, some dust started to cling to it and eventually it started to lift up at the edges eventually it had so little glue you could just sort of blow it and it would fall off and relationally that's often what happens with us when we start sticking ourselves to all kinds of different surfaces all kinds of different people stick yourself pull off stick yourself pull off eventually that glue disintegrates you don't you no longer have that clue and when you do find the person you really want to commit yourself to you can no longer do that you find to your shock and your horror you can no longer give yourself because you've given yourself so many times you all over the place you're not there to be able to give yourself holy like you want to 
And each of us has a, a need, a desire to do that. I was speaking to an old uh, friend of mine, Derek Manser, a, um, a gentleman in, in Franschhoek. Um, and and he, he, he got married to his wife, Rosita. They come, he comes from England and, and she comes from, from, from the Netherlands. Um, and, you know, they were, you know, typical, you know, British, you know, D- Dutch culture, quite a liberal background. So, you know, they, they had a lot of sexual relationships before they got married. Then they got married and they were married for a couple of years before they actually became Christians. They became Christians a bit later in life. And, and, he, and, he, and he was tell, talking to me about this, and he, and, he, and he said something that was very interesting. He said, you know, that's one of the most difficult things when you come from a background where you've given yourself sexually to different people, is when you actually get to the, the right person that you want to give yourself to, you realize you're not all there to give. And he, and he says, it's like that song, the first cut is the deepest. You ever heard that song? Is it a bit before your time? Okay, that's, that's, Cat Stevens wrote it in, or recorded it in 1967. But I think um, Cheryl Crow recently, you know, a couple of years ago, had a, had a hit with it. You know, the first cut is the deepest. I just want to read you some of the words of it because it, 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 four different people have had hit songs with that song. And you know why? Because it so resonates with people's experience. Now, just listen to the words. I'm just going to read you some of the words. It says, I would have given you all of my heart, but there's someone who's torn it apart and is taking just all that I had. But if you want to try to love again, baby, I'll try to love again. But I know, let me just get it, but I know the first, first cut is the deepest. Uh, I know the first cut is the deepest. Uh, but when it comes to being lucky, he's cursed. Uh, when it comes to loving me, he's worse. I still, want, I still want you by my side just to help me dry the tears that I've cried. But I'm sure going to give you a try. If you want to try to love again, try uh, to love again. The first cut is the deepest. I know the first cut is the deepest. In other words, you know, universal experience of this kind of approach to sexuality tells us there's a lot of tears. When you do get, you do actually want to give all of you, you realize I've been torn apart. I'm not all there. I cannot give all of me. So the point is, that the purpose of sex is not self-expression only. It's not self-gratification. It's not self-denial. It's self-donation. Sex is a powerful commitment apparatus, covenant-making apparatus that we must respect. And that when we use it in the right way, it's, it's delightful. It's powerful. When we do it in marriage... It really bonds us as husband and wife together in a way that very few other things can. And it's special. And God made it that way. He made it that special. So he says, uh, therefore, you know, because of that, because it's such a powerful co- commitment apparatus, covenant-making apparatus, flee sexual immorality. And the word that he uses there for sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18 is the word porneia, from, from which we get our word pornography. But it's not, it's not talking about pornography. Um, sexual immorality is sort of a very vague term that can mean almost any kind of, you know, s- sexual behavior that, 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 is, that is harmful and that is contrary to the, to the word. But, but porneia is, is specifically all forms of sex outside of marriage. 
Now, he could have also used the word for adultery. Adultery means that if you're married to someone and you have sex with someone else that you're not married to, that's adultery. Now, pornea, the word includes that, but it's wider than that. It's all. It's, it's all forms of sex outside of marriage. It's premarital marital sex and it's extramarital sex. And he says, flee, therefore, all sex outside of marriage. Why? Because marriage is the one safe place within which you can do this radical self-donation and give yourself, not only sexually, but as a whole person to the person that you love. And they make a commitment to cherish you, to nurture you, and to protect you rather than reject you. And it avoids all the heartache, all the tears that go along with the, the other wrong approaches. So, you know, I often use this analogy, but what Paul is basically saying is that, you know, sex is like fire. Is fire a, is fire a bad thing? Is fire evil? Not in itself. No, not inherently evil. In fact, fire can be a very good thing. If you put fire, make a fire in the fireplace, you can keep yourself warm with a fire. You can boil a pot on it. Okay? So it, it can be a useful, a very good thing if it's in the fireplace. But if you take that same fire out of the fireplace and put it in the roof of your house or, you know, on this wooden floor, then all of a sudden it becomes a bad thing. It's going to build, burn down the building. So whether fire is good or bad depends on where you put it. Same thing with sex. Whether it's good or bad depends on where you put it. If you keep fire in the fireplace, it's a good thing. If you keep sex within marriage, it's a good thing. In fact, it's a precious, a powerful and a very precious thing that God gave to us. And that's why um, Paul says, you know, avoid, you know, flee. I, I like the way he says it. He says, flee sexually married. Flee pornaya. Flee all sex outside of marriage. He doesn't just say avoid it. He says flee from it. I'm not going to ask you to, please don't put up your hands, but, but those of you who did have sex before outside of marriage, who of you would have been able, to, who of you, if you could, would have gone back and taken it back and, and, and not done it if, if, you, if you knew what you, what you know now? I think many of us would probably have said, mm, yeah, you know, it actually long term it did more damage. Okay, so, so don't make, try and make, don't, don't try and have sex and try and make a covenant without that commitment being there. So marriage is the one safe place. But, you know, if, if I stop there and say that marriage is the right place and the purpose for sex is marriage, you know, and making a marriage commitment and a marriage covenant, then that would also fall short. You know, sex is not just a duty that you do within marriage. That, that view is also too low for, for, for the Bible. It's, it's a lot more than that. In, in other words, saying that sex is an end in itself, not just a means to an end, actually destroys sex and, and makes sex harmful. In the same way, saying that marriage is an end in itself also destroys marriage. I want to show you that. Look here in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 13. The last part of the verse, he says, The body, however, because he's talking in that context, you remember those verses? He's talking about, about sex and about a prostitute and, and joining herself to a prostitute and all that. It starts off by saying, The body, however, 
is meant for sexual, not, not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And then in verse 17, at the end of that section, he says, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. And just by the way, the one spirit we share with the Lord if we're Christians is the Holy Spirit. So that spirit should actually be in cap- a capital S, spirit. What is, what is Paul saying? He's saying our exclusive commitment in, in marriage, in terms of our sexuality, expressing our sexuality in marriage, reflects our exclusive commitment to the Lord spiritually. Now it's interesting, in, in, in Paul's day, I mean, anything goes. I mean, you could have multiple parties, especially if you're a man. You know, women were actually expected, you know, to be faithful to their husbands. But husbands in those days could do pretty much anything they wanted to, you know. And they could sleep around with you know, have their wife, have a girlfriend, you know, someone else, their neighbor's wife, and then have a, a prostitute. I mean, that was the world that they lived in. It was mean, you know. Um, but they also, it's interesting, they didn't believe in exclusive commitment to, you know, in sexually, but they also didn't believe in exclusive commitment religiously. They have many gods. Anything goes. And, and, and Paul is saying Christianity is radically different. In, in uh, like the one I, I, I remember reading this one um, early church father writing, you know, we as Christians we share our goods, but not our wives, not our spouses. <laughs> We're generous in sharing our goods, but we don't share our spouses. And the same way, we don't share our God. We believe in exclusive commitment when it comes to marriage, and that exclusive commitment in marriage reflects our exclusive commitment to God, to Jesus. And and what he's trying to say here is that. Even the best marriage, this side of eternity, is just a pale reflection of our ultimate marriage to the Lord Jesus. Ultimately, our bodies are meant for Jesus, the Lord Jesus. And for eternity, we will be united with Him. Eternity, we will be united with Him. And, and just think about this. If you have a good marriage, you know, marriage can be really great. Sex can be really great. But think about this for a moment. If the muddy waters, thousands of miles away from the source, taste so sweet, how sweet will the fountainhead taste? To which they are just, they are just a, a signpost pointing towards. How sweet will that union be? How deep will that pleasure be? How deep will that commitment be? How safe will you feel within that relationship? How loved will you feel within His arms? And that is the ultimate purpose of marriage. So the, the ultimate purpose of sex is marriage. If it's rightly understood, making covenant. Exclusive, enduring covenant. And the ultimate purpose of the marriage covenant is to point us to a more important covenant, the covenant with Jesus, the marriage union with Jesus, our Lord. Okay, so a misunderstanding of purpose inevitably leads to abuse. If you misunderstand the purpose of sex, you're going to abuse it. But if you understand its correct purpose to make a covenant commitment in marriage and give not only yourself physically but your whole person, then it can be very special, very precious within marriage. But then you also must make sure you don't misunderstand the purpose of marriage. Whereas liberal culture tends to idolize sex and romance, conservative culture tends to idolize family. You know, 
and, and, and both are wrong. You know, you can, anything you idolize, you're going to destroy, and it's going to destroy you. Anything you put in the place of God will destroy you, and you will destroy it. And, and that's why, you know, if you're looking for a life partner, first make sure that Jesus occupies the right place in your life. Because otherwise, if you do find that life partner, you will harm them if you make them too important. You will harm them. I remember I said this on Wednesday as well, but um, Louis Malherbe, a well-known Afrikaans preacher, you know, a few decades ago said, my first marriage failed because in my first marriage I was the most important person. My second marriage failed because in my second marriage my wife was the most important person. And my third marriage succeeded because in my third marriage Jesus was the most important person. You know, there are some of you sitting here and, and in your hearts, you know, especially I'm, I just want to talk for a moment with singles. In your hearts, your, finding your life partner is so important to you that you sort of idolize them. That you have this idealized and, uh, view of a life partner and you've idolized them. And, and God realizes, God knows that if he now, at this moment, before you've dealt with it, gives you that person, you will hurt them. You will harm them. You will destroy them. And, and, and so God is holding back. And you're wondering, why, God? I'm praying. I'm asking. Why are you holding back? Why are you not releasing this person into my life? And God is saying, it's for your own good. You're going to hurt this person. Here's the thing. And I'm going to talk about this tonight at the, at the worship evening a bit more. If you do not make Jesus your one true love, you will never know true love. If you do not make Jesus your one true love, you will never know true love. So it's important that we understand that all of this, sex, marriage, all ultimately points to our relationship with Jesus. That will ultimately fulfill us. And when it does fulfill us, then whether we're single or married, we're fulfilled in the Lord. Being Loving Jesus and being loved by Him makes your singleness better. And loving Jesus and being loved by Him makes your marriage better. Because everything, unless Jesus is in the right place in your life, everything, nothing else in your life will fall into place. And ultimately, even the good things that God gives you will destroy you. Because you put them in the wrong place. Can you see that? Father God, we just want to thank you, Lord, for your Son, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that... That we can experience, Lord, the Lord, even now, Lord, in this in this life, Lord, just a foretaste of how awesome, how precious, how powerful it is to be able to connect to someone on that level. And we realize, Lord, that our spiritual connection with you goes even far beyond what is possible, even with a physical connection in marriage. And Lord, we pray, Lord God, that we will make no other, put no other relationship above our relationship with you. But that we'll first find fulfillment in you so that we can then enjoy all the other relationships as you intend us to do. Lord, I want to pray, Lord, that you'll shift paradigms in people's minds today, Lord. Where there are some, Lord, who have, Lord, almost a, a, a reckless, liberal approach to, to sexuality as self-expression or, or, or mere self-gratification, Lord. I pray, Lord, that, that they will see, Lord God, that, that sex is a lot more than that, a lot more precious than that, a lot more powerful than, than, than that, and deserves a lot more respect than that. And I, I pray for, for people who have a, a 
Lord, a, a conservative religious view of sexuality, Lord, as something to be endured, something to, that is defiling and, and dirty. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you'll make a mind shift in our, in our hearts and minds and, and help us to understand how precious sex is, how powerful sex is, and that we'll have a healthy respect for it and that we'll be able to use it for the purpose for which you intended it so that we can be blessed as we do it in Jesus' name.